Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. This episode is dropping a day later than they normally are, and I'm going to apologize for that. And also, if you guys notice, my voice doesn't sound quite like it normally does. We unfortunately suffered a very difficult loss in our family over the weekend. My wife's grandmother, who she was extremely close with, it has it, it's been rough, so... If, uh, if my voice gives out a little bit at, at points, I apologize, but I am not alone today. I am once again joined by my friend Cal the Kaiju Guy. What's up, everybody? And today we're going to be talking about a movie that both of us are quite fond of from 1994, The Flintstones, which this movie has been th- differently known as Flintstones, The Flintstones Movie, Flintstones, the live action movie at, at various different stages of it. It was directed by Brian Levant. Brian Levant directed Problem Child 2, Jingle All the Way, Snow Dogs, and Are We There Yet? While also being one of the script writers for the 1997 uh, movie based on the TV series, Leave It to Beaver. Did you ever see that? I never had a desire to. (laughs) Don't. I watched it when I was a kid and I didn't like it. I I liked the the whole classic TV show. But uh, yeah, when they did a movie, it was just one of those things to where I was just like, no, some things don't I'm need gonna, to be I'm updated. Gonna, I'm going to pretend I mean? that that doesn't exist. Like some things really <laughs> don't need to be updated or brought up into the new. It just no. it, it doesn't work that way. All right, now the credited writers, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit, are Jim Genoan and Tom S. Parker, who worked together on this film as well as Richie Rich, Getting Even with Dad and Major League Two, and Stephen E. DeSouza. So, now, Stephen DeSouza, his films have grossed more than $2 billion at the box office that he's written for, including 48 Hours, Another 48 Hours, Commando, the Die Hard series, and Judge Dredd. It was released on May 27th of 1994. It was made on a budget of $46 million and pulled in $341.6 million at the box office. It was a huge box office success. It got quite a few negative reviews. My critics weren't very thrilled about it, and uh, I'll get to that in a little bit. Basically, the premise of the movie... Fred Flintstone gets duped into taking a position with the company that ends up laying off everybody he works for. Of course, he gets rich doing it. And it's just, it's just something that you can honestly see in like a, an extended episode of the old animated series. This kind of thing happening. Uh, Fred Flintstone was played by John Goodman. John Goodman is one of my absolute favorite actors. I mean, he's been in a, 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 a list of things. Revenge of the Nerds. He was in Raising Arizona. Arachnophobia. He was in King Ralph, which I actually really enjoyed King Ralph. We're Back, A Dinosaur Tale. I actually really like that movie as well. Uh, the Borrowers. Of course, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Emperor's New Groove. He was in Monsters, Inc. On television-wise, he's been in Treme. He, of course, was in Roseanne. And just, there's a... I don't have the time to talk about everything he's been in. And I've got to be the kaiju guy to point out that he was in Kong Skull Island. I figured you were going to, so but, I went um, ahead and let you yeah, do it. Uh, John Goodman, he's, uh, he's a very iconic individual, played a very iconic role. And you know that whenever it comes to certain actors, there's always like one role that in your brain, that, that's who they are. You know what I mean? Like for yeah. Arnold... It's Terminator. For Sly, it's Rocky. Yeah. That's just for a lot of people, that's who they are. For me personally, John Goodman, immediately, Fred Flintstone. That's who I think of. <laughs> if any of the follow-ups to the first Rambo had actually been as good as the first one, it might have been difficult to debate between Rocky or Rambo for Sylvester Stallone, honestly. Yeah. But they, of course, had to differ on the ending of that movie as opposed to the ending of the book in order to keep the character alive and make more movies because in the book, he kills himself. Yeah, I mean... They filmed it. We're... Well, 
Okay, we're not trying to get into a Rambo discussion, <laughs> but just real, real quick. The second Rambo is actually very good. I think it's a great follow-up. I've got nothing but love for the second one. The third one, <laughs> I, I don't give a hoot about the third one. Then they did the one just titled Rambo. I actually like that I one. I love I really that did. movie. It's really great. And then they did Rambo Last Blood. Haven't seen it. And I watched Last Blood. And um, it was about as... I'm not going to say it's bad. But it's about as mediocre of a Rambo movie as as it could get. So my official ranking for like Rambo, like the order that I like them in, is First Blood... The new Rambo, Rambo 2, and, uh, Last Blood, and yeah. then uh, Rambo 3. Well, I, I've got an interesting history with that franchise as well. Again, we're not trying to get off on a Rambo discussion. We'll get right back to the Flintstones. We'll after talk this. about Rambo one day. Oh, absolutely. Just... <laughs> the, uh, I went with friends of mine to see Rambo in theaters, the one in Cambodia, That the whole thing. Came out of the movie theater. Somebody had broken into my car, stole my radio, all my change, and left my CDs. Which, that's just the ultimate insult. I'm going to take your CD player, but I'm going to leave you the CD so that you know you can't listen to them. I guess that means you just have bad taste in music. Hey, they didn't take the best of bread. <laughs> that's all that matters. Anyway, and then, fast forward about five years. Working at Hastings. I decided, you know what? I want to own Rambo, First Blood. I bought it. This is a used copy. Brought it home. Opened it up. Had the best of Rascal Flats in it. <laughs> And I want to point out that when they bought movies back, they are required to open them, look at the movie, flip it over, look at the backside, and make sure it is in workable condition before they buy it. And I got the best... I, I'm To this day, I'm mad about that. And to this day, Ian makes jokes about it. <laughs> like, I'm talking the next morning, I told him about it. And well, I mean, I'm, looking just, at, I'm looking at First Blood on your shelf. That's because right I have it now. Okay, then. <laughs> I, it was on the five ninety nine brand new table, and I got it. I was not. I'm like, I'm not messing with this again. Back to Ghostbusters. Barney Rubble was played by Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Ghostbusters. We're talking about Flintstones. Flintstones. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rick Moranis was in Ghostbusters. There we go. He was in Strange Brew, Ghostbusters, Little Shop of Horrors, Spaceballs, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, that whole franchise. He was. He provided a voice in Brother Bear. He was in Big Bully, opposite of Tom Arnold. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I liked it when I was a kid. Rewatched it on YouTube about a year ago, and I'm like, "What the hell was wrong with me as a child to enjoy this film?" And what's it called? Big Bully. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll look into it. <laughs> and then, of course, one of my personal favorite Rick Moranis films, Little Giants. That's the football one. I Opposite love Ed Little Giants. Are you freaking kidding oh, me? Oh, I love that movie. Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> Rick Moranis would, of course, take a near 20 year hiatus from Hollywood after his wife passed away to raise his kids. However, he is returning in the new Honey I Shrunk the Kids series called Shrunk. So, that'll be interesting to see that. Wilma Flintstone was played by Elizabeth Perkins. Of course, Elizabeth Perkins was in Big, He Said, She Said, The Miracle on 34th Street, 28 Days, Cats and Dogs. She provided a voice on Finding Nemo. She was in uh, The Ring 2 and Must Love Dogs. Betty Rubble was played by Rosie O'Donnell. Now, Ro <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell was in A League of Their Own, <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle, Another stakeout, Harriet the Spy. She also provided a voice in Tarzan, and of course, she had the Rosie O'Donnell show. The villainous Cliff Vandercave was played by Kyle McLaughlin. Now, Kyle McLaughlin, of course, is probably best known for Twin Peaks, but he was also in the first Dune movie from 1984. Uh, he was in Showgirls, Hamlet. He provided the voice of the father in Inside Out. He was in Capone. And television-wise, other than Twin Peaks, he was in Sex and the City and in Portlandia. 
The secretary character, Miss Sharon Stone, was played by Halle Berry. <laughs> Halle Berry, of course, is in The Last Boy Scout, Boomerang. She was in Bulwark, X-Men, Swordfish, Monsters Ball, Gothica. Swordfish. Oh, yeah, Swordfish. She was also <laughs> in Catwoman. She provided a voice in Robots. She was in The Perfect Stranger, Cloud Atlas, and quite a few other things that she has done since then. John Wick 3. John Wick 3. Uh, she was also Wait, in... 3 or 2? Yeah, 3. Yeah, I haven't seen Parabellum, oh, okay. but I do know she's <laughs> in it. And, of course, she was also in a more recent movie on Netflix entitled Bruised about... It's ostensibly about mixed martial arts, but that really is like a backdrop to it. It's not the actual... I enjoyed the movie. It was... It's got it's got my, my, my secret wife. Valentina Shevchenko is in that The movie, movie was better than I expected it to be. It really was. She's in it. It's got my stamp of approval. That's <laughs> that's all that matters. And I'm talking about Valentina, not Halle Berry. Pearl Slaghoople, which is, of course, Wilma's mother, was played by the late Elizabeth Taylor. I cannot even begin to name the movies this woman has been in because she if, had a if you don't know who decade career. Yeah, if you don't know who Elizabeth Taylor is at this point, we, we can't help you. No, like I mean, <laughs> the only one I'm gonna, the only two I'm gonna give you rather are she was in the the film Butterfield Eight, which is actually where she got an Academy Award for Best Actress, and she also to date provided the only instance of Maggie Simpson speaking on the Simpsons TV series, and I'm not talking about dream sequences or anything like that. Like there's there's an episode where Homer is putting her to bed. And he's like, you know what? The sooner kids talk, the sooner they talk back. I hope you never say a word. Good night. Turns out the light. She takes her pacifier out and she says, Daddy. And it took her 19 takes because she kept sounding too sexy when she was doing it. We're like, we can't have this on a one-year-old. You, you got to do better. Of course. That's... <laughs> of course. The character of Mr. Slate, which of course is the head of the quarry, was played by Dan Florek. Now, Dan Florek is probably without... You know, I'm going to go ahead and remove probably. He's best known as Captain Don Cragen on Law & Order and Law & Order SVU. I know you're not a very particular fan of that. Uh, uh, it, it, it has its moments, but for the most part, no. It was an ensemble cast, as far as the smaller roles go, including the character Hoagie, who's played by the great Richard Mull, who, while he mostly does voiceover work, he was bull on Night Court. He's that tall guy with the thick black beard. Like you, you, He's very distinctive. He played the ghost in uh, Scary Movie 2, if that'll help you kind of imagine him at all. Uh, the character of Joe Rockhead was played by Erwin Keyes, who passed in 2015. Erwin Keyes, or I mean Joe Rockhead, rather, is best known as the character of Hugo on The Jeffersons. The character of the Grizzled Man, which is the guy that Fred is talking to around the little burning thing when he's hiding out, was played by the great Jonathan Winters, who passed in 2013. This man had a six-decade career. He also worked on television, and his last role was as Papa Smurf in The Smurfs 2. And, of course, the character of Yeti was played by Jack O'Halloran. I know you know exactly who he was. He played the mute Kryptonian Non in the Superman movies. Jay Leno appears as the host of Bedrock's Most Wanted. Sam Raimi appears as the fictionalized version of Cliff Vandercave. And both Joseph Barbera and William Hanna of Hanna-Barbera cameo in this film. One of them is a board member and the other one is driving the little sports car that gets shit on by the giant flying Pteranodon. <laughs> He's not in it when it happens. The B-52s appear as the BC-52s. Which, that's a clever yeah, joke in and of itself. And the B-52s are actually doing their farewell tour right now. After 45 years, they've decided enough is enough. And, of course, the legendary Harvey Corman, who actually voiced the great Gazoo in the cartoon series, provides the voice of the Dictabird in this movie. And Mel Blanc did the vocal effects for Dino. Okay, this had a doozy of a development stage. 
Keith Barish and Joel Silver bought the rights for a live-action film back, way back in 1985, and they commissioned D'Souza to write a script with Richard Donner attached to direct the film. Oh, wow. D'Souza's initial script was submitted in September of 87. However, it was rejected in October of 89. Not a whole lot of information exists about that, that script. It just it didn't seem right to Donner to do that one. To that end, they got Daniel and Josh Golden to submit a script, as well as the writing duo of Peter Wortman and Robert Conti. This was in March of 1990. Every single one of these was ultimately rejected. Mitch Markowitz, who is best known for writing the screenplay for Good Morning Vietnam, was then hired to write a script as well. Similar to The Grapes of Wrath, this script, this movie, would have involved Fred and Barney losing their jobs during a depression in Bedrock. They would have left bedrock and gone across country trying to find work in order to support their family and it would have ended with them all living in a trailer park trying to keep their families together it was described as heroism and poignancy on the screen donner completely disliked the script founding it to be not only too sentimental but entirely against the spirit of the cartoon Further drafts were submitted by jeffrey reno and ron osborne in 1991 and 1992 but these went nowhere Ultimately, Amblin Entertainment, which is helmed by Steven Spielberg, bought the rights, and Spielberg had been determined to cast John Goodman as Fred Flintstone in a movie ever since they had worked together in 1989. He fired Richard Donner via FedEx. <laughs> That's wow. pretty insulting, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. And hired Brian Levant to direct it. Now, Levant is an avid, rabid fan of the original series. He has an entire room in his home devoted solely to memorabilia from the Flintstones, ranging from the Flintstones chewable vitamins all the way to the packs of Marlboro with Fred Flintstone on them. Because back in the 50s, they used to run cigarette commercials with the, the Flintstones advertising these cigarettes. When he was hired, every previous script was thrown out, gotten rid of, and in May of 1992, writer Michael J. Wilson turned in a four-page short story that would ultimately serve as the basis for the film. Levant got Bruce Cohen, Jason Hoffs, Kate Parker, Gary Rossman to work on a new draft in 1993, uh, like early 1993. Levant then also brought in what he called an all-star writing staff consisting of Friends of his who had written for Family Ties, Night Court, and Happy Days. The core group of this would ultimately be known as the Flintstone Eight, including Al Adekman, Cindy Bagel, Lloyd Garver, David Silverman, Stephen Sustanich, Nancy Steen, Neil Thompson, and Levant himself. They wrote this new draft, and they did frequent roundtable workshops, including these eight, plus other names including Rob Dames, Lenny Rips, Fred Fox Jr., Davis, uh, Davis Savile, Lon Diamond, David Richardson, Roy Texer, Richard Gorman, Michael J. Digitano, Ruth Bennett, Lowell Gans, and Babalu Mandel, Mandel, who both only worked for two days on the film but still got $100,000 for their work. And even Rick Moranis attended a few and chipped in ideas as well. Eight revisions later, Levant finally registered a shooting script on August 7th of 1993. In total... Over 35 writers worked on this film. The Flintstone 8 were the ones that were submitted for the arbitration with the Writers Guild of America. However, D'Souza and Genoan and Parker did eventually get credited as well for their work, having laid down the foundation. It is important to note that during the time that Rick Moranis was working on the writing staff, he was not cast in the film. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> this cast had a couple of uh, weird ones to it as far as the process there. Uh, the one that was the most key thing to be done throughout the entire casting process was Fred Flintstone. John Candy, Jim Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Chevy Chase were all considered for the role, as well as Danny DeVito. It was felt that Belushi, Aykroyd, Murray, and Chevy Chase were too skinny for the role, and they felt that a fat suit would be inappropriate for what they were trying to do. Spielberg, like I had mentioned earlier, had wanted John Goodman since working with him in 1989 on the film Always. To the point that when they were doing a table read, he stood up and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to introduce you to the man who will eventually play Fred Flintstone in a movie that I make about the Flintstones, John Goodman. Goodman was not thrilled. He felt like he got sandbagged into the role. He It was not something he was looking forward to doing. Although, ultimately, he did enjoy himself and have fun doing it. Had John Goodman refused, this is after the writing script and everything, after all this stuff had been done, if John Goodman had refused, the movie would have been scrapped. Oh, well, that would have been aggravating. You're telling me. <laughs> <clears throat> Wilma had a couple of uh, auditions from Gina Davis and Faith Ford, but it came down to Catherine O'Hara and Elizabeth Perkins. Catherine O'Hara, of course, played the mother on Home Alone. Perkins ended up winning the role when she showed up for the final read-through of her audition process with her hair dyed red and in a Wilma Flintstone costume to show them that she was Wilma. She's Wilma as far as I'm concerned. I've always, I've always had a thing for, for Wilma in that movie. <laughs> now, I mentioned earlier that Danny DeVito was considered for Fred. The reason that was, Danny DeVito was the first and primary casting choice for Barney Rubble. He felt he was too gruff for that role and suggested like, you have the perfect Barney Rubble on your writing staff with you with Rick Moranis. Get his hair blonde and put him in there with John Goodman and you'll see he's much better at that. He was considered for Fred, but you know he felt that you've already got the perfect Fred. You've got the perfect Barney right there. This isn't for me. I'll be here when you make a Jetsons movie, which they still <laughs> to this day have never done. And that is a big pet peeve of mine. How, how we have gone nearly 30 years from when this film came out and we still don't have a live-action Jetsons movie. Um, this is the year in canon that George Jetson was born. Unfortunately, um, because of this day and age and how we live, uh, I don't think we'll ever get a live-action Jetsons film. If at anything, we would either get just a simple animated reboot of the show or it would be completely like CGI, like... You know, yeah, like, like like Jimmy Neutron or something like yeah, that. So, yeah, so uh, just a, a live action Jetsons. I think the time has uh passed. has passed for that, and that's a. I hate to say that it's a dull going shame. I really hate to say that because I mean, Danny DeVito is the perfect spacely spacely sprockets. Like they, Ed Helms is the perfect. Yes, uh, he is. I've always Jetson. I don't like Kristen Wiig, and I thought she was perfect for his wife. Yeah. <laughs> and if he hadn't, you know, been bullied into quitting acting, the dude that played Joffrey could have played uh, his boy Elroy when he was younger. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, no, no sense in dwelling on that. Moving right along, Betty Rubble was down to Janine Turner, Tracy Ullman, and Daphne Zuniga. Daphne Zuniga, of course, played the princess in Spaceballs, uh, the, the Princess Leia uh, corollary there. What we know. <laughs> However, because Rosie O'Donnell could perfectly nail the laughter, as well as the fact that she had worked with the original voice actress for Betty Rubble in the past, the laughter itself is a hallmark of the character, and because she could do it so spot on, they're like, "We, we, she'll be fine in it." 
And she didn't do bad as Betty in this movie either. She really didn't. Now, here's the weird one. The character of Miss Sharon Stone was originally written for the real Sharon Stone. Contrary to some belief, she did not drop out of it due to issues with the film or not wanting to do it. She had a scheduling conflict that prevented her from filming this movie. To that end, it was going to go to the number two selection, Nicole Kidman. However, because Sharon Stone had had the career she had, and because Kidman was having the career that she had, Nicole Kidman felt that this was a movie that she could afford to pass on to someone else because she didn't think it would hurt her career to, do, to not do this movie. And to that end, Halle Berry was trying to get more exposure, was still breaking into real acting. I mean, she's only been in a couple of things up to this point, and she needed something to really help build her profile. She suggested they go ahead and go with third choice, which was Halle Berry, and they went from there. And was I the only one who saw this movie as a child and thought that the, girl that, the girls that played Pebbles were the Olsen twins? I mean, I certainly didn't think that. I, I did. For the longest time, I thought that. And then re-watching it a couple years ago, I'm like, they don't look anything like the Olsen twins. What the hell was I smoking? No, I mean, uh, beats me, bub. <laughs> I've, I've never never made that connection. I believe Fred Tatashore uh, provided some of the vocal effects for Bam Bam as well. You know, when he goes, Bam Bam, that's a... No, I'm sorry, that was E.G. Daly, she, uh, the voice of Tommy Pickles in Rugrats. Fred Tatashore voiced a couple of the older dinosaurs. I like, I like how you said, you know, whenever he goes, Bam Bam, and I'm sitting there thinking, what else would he say? Other uh, well, say hi, Dad, in the movie. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that's like you know when Pikachu says Pikachu. <laughs> Dino and the Dictabird and many of the other dinosaurs and animals that were not the moments they were not CGI were all designed and operated through Jim Henson's Creature Shop. What little CGI there was was done by Industrial Lights and Magic. Levant was extremely impressed by their work on Jurassic Park and felt that you know they could do the good and do a good job with this. Principal photography began May 17th of 1993 and wrapped on August 20th of 1993. It was shot in Glen Canyon, Utah, as well as around Los Angeles. It was filmed from May 17th through August 20th. That's a long time period to film this movie in, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the reason they took that long, they complete, because of how much of a super fan of the series he was, they completely built Bedrock. From the the outside of the mall, the neighborhoods, the houses, which were you could go inside and look around them like that. All that stuff. They built all that near the Vasquez Rocks in California. And on days where they would not be filming, they had someone, just a random bedrock citizen in character, giving guided tours of bedrock to any visitors that were in the area before it was ultimately demolished after filming wrapped. To the point that one time while they're bringing people through, there are people who have accounts of seeing John Goodman and Barney Rubble sitting down and eating, and they wave at them, and they respond in character for that to help with that tour guide thing. <laughs> I wish I could have seen that. I'm not going to lie. Like, uh, Bedrock, I love the set of Bedrock in, uh, in that movie, and I remember whenever I was a kid and watching, I never had this idea whenever I was watching the cartoon, but whenever it came to watching the movie, I always wanted a play set of Bedrock. Yeah. It always looked like, I'm like, man, I could build my own little rock city. It looked, I could customize it mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. It was just something about how it was built for that movie. I'm like, I want a toy. A whole Bedrock City toy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was released May 27th of 1994. It had no filming issues whatsoever. It wrapped on schedule. They just extended the schedule because Brian, again, Brian Levant, such a huge fan of the series. He didn't want to stop. 
pretty much he was enjoying being in Bedrock. On its opening day, four-day Memorial Weekend, it pulled in $37 million in 1994. Ultimately, it grossed $130.5 million domestically and $211 million internationally for a total of $341.6 million worldwide, more than seven times its budget. This movie had the largest opening weekend in May until Twister broke it in 1996. And in the UK, it had the second highest opening week behind Jurassic Park. Financially and from a box office standpoint, the movie was a tremendous success. Uh, for those of you that are wondering, um, I just Googled it because I'm a weird guy and I like to check out inflation of numbers and all of that kind of stuff. The amount that it made in 1994, that would equate to round about, give or take, uh, $600 million, uh today. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, it, it's, it sucks whenever you talk about a lot of movies in the 90s, 80s and 90s. It's like, oh, well, it made $200 million. Well, that doesn't sound like much at all. It, it was it was a lot more than what you think. You know, people, really people are getting spoiled because, one, everything's so doggone expensive nowadays, and two, it just, it, because everything is so expensive, it seems like whatever, at least one movie a year breaks the billion dollar at thing least, now, just about. Least. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, that's very, very good for in 94, or if it was released today to have made a little over 600 million it would have been considered to, a tremendous success. To put that into perspective, the Batman has only made a little over seven hundred million worldwide at this point in time in its box office run. So everyone knows how big of a hit the Batman was. The sequel's already been greenlit. So just think that as of right now, the Batman would have only made a hundred million more, roundabout, give or take. Yeah. Than the Flintstones. Yeah. That's pretty freaking impressive. It really, really, truly <laughs> is. Got to that end. Big box office success and everything. The critics hated it. They absolutely savaged this movie from start to finish. They called it everything from pun-heavy and cynical to the point that Siskel and Ebert felt that the story and themes were too adult for children to really get. To which I say, have you ever watched the cartoon series? There's a... The Flintstones was meant to be adult. It was the first adult animated show. There, it was are, a old, there are old commercials of the Flintstones promoting cigarettes. Birth control. Like Fred and Wilma Flintstone were the first couple ever shown on television to be in the same bed together. Yeah. Like, like this was by no means <laughs> originally supposed to be a children's no, show. No, it really wasn't. I go back and I watch older episodes when I'm a kid and I'm like... Oh, that went over my head when I was a kid. That went over my head, too. Uh -huh. just, good Lord. How much of this went over my head? It, it just... I, they felt that it was bright and insubstantial, favoring visuals over writing. I have written down here in parentheses how effing stupid. Because, I mean, if you go back and watch the Flintstones, it is like... It's bright colors. Very it's, bright. It's, it's not... <laughs> it's not Othello. It's not going to have this... Perfect Shakespearean story laid out to it. It's the Flintstones. You know, contrary to what some critics want to believe, sometimes it's just perfectly fine to just have a stupid, enjoyable movie. Mm -hmm. it, you don't have to have crazy good character development. 
the plot doesn't necessarily have to go anywhere. You don't have to walk out a changed man. Sometimes it's good to just be like... Shut your you, brain off and enjoy yeah, what you're watching. You know what? I enjoyed the heck out of that for like the last hour and a half. It was enjoyable. I'm happier and everything. Who the heck is anybody to sit there and be like, well, you're wrong because that's a bad movie. I, that's one of my biggest problems with critics. And especially a lot of the times they'll take critics to review a movie and it's a genre that critic is not fond of. I'm sorry. I'm going to take somebody who loves horror movies. I'm going to take their opinion on a horror movie way more seriously than I'm going to take someone who thought that Babe was the best movie they'd ever seen, what they think about The Exorcist. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to use this as an example real quick. I'm not trying to... Um... I'm not trying to jump onto like any kind of Zack Snyder bandwagon or anything like that. Right, I mean, like you, you know, I'm a diehard Zack Snyder fan, and I'm not trying to push anything on the listeners here. But this is like one of the things that I'm talking that we're talking about with critics is that whenever I believe it was Dawn of Justice, whenever it came out, and the critics were getting ready to watch it, there was one critic who actually wrote in an interview. Uh, I read this probably about two weeks after this happened. Um, in some interview or whatever he was doing, he was sitting down, getting ready to watch the movie. He had his his notebook ready so he could take notes and all that kind of stuff. And another critic came and sat down next to him and immediately, like, he had a coffee or something like that. And he just started writing, started writing points and everything. And the guy's like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm writing my review. And he's like, the movie hasn't even started yet. And that guy looked him square in the eye and he said, it's a Zack Snyder movie. I don't like Zack Snyder movies, so I'm already giving this a negative review. That's the problem with critics. Yeah, so anytime somebody's like, well, the critic said this, think about the time exactly. that the guy went to go see a Zack Snyder movie and before the lights even dimmed, he was writing a negative review because he does not like Zack Snyder. Now, I've got a love-hate relationship with Dawn of Justice. So, you know, that is what it is. But, <laughs> you know, but... But, uh, I mean, you're not wrong. And, again, this is something that it baffles my mind as an adult, knowing what I know about the Flintstones, to read that the problem the critics had with this movie, I'm like, well, you just had a very unhappy childhood, didn't you? You, you clearly would not have been able to enjoy this as a child. So Some people just don't know what they, no, they, they want to really like don't, or what they man. don't want to like. I'm going to use... Uh, just just because it's on my brain, I'm going to use another Zack Snyder um, uh, example. Whenever Zack Snyder's Justice League came out, there was a a woman I can't rem remember her name. She was a uh, a film critic, and when it, in 2017, when the theatrical version of Justice League came out, she gave it a positive review. Mind you, it was like I say positive review. It was like a 2.9 out of five. You know, she had some negative things to say about it and all that. But overall, she's like, it was somewhat enjoyable. Gave it a positive review. When Zack Snyder's Justice League came out, her opening line of her review was, while superior to the theatrical version, this film still has problems. She then left Zack Snyder's Justice League a negative review. That doesn't make any kind of sense. No, no, it doesn't. So that's again, I'm not just talking. I mean, about, I'm not just talking taste about is Zach. subjective, but that <laughs> objectively makes no sense. No, you can't leave something say, "Oh, I like this," and then look at this thing over here and say, "I think this is way better than that," but I don't like it. Like how <laughs> you know? So yeah, don't listen to critics. People yeah. make your own decisions. Go watch movies and form your own opinions by uh, by them. The one thing that all critics and audiences agreed on was that 
John Goodman was the absolute pinnacle of this film. He was the best thing about it. He's absolutely he embodies the, the very thing that is. He's Fred absolutely the highlight, unless you know Halle Berry. Yeah, it got <laughs> mostly like it got nominated for a bunch of awards and things, but they were all like Razzies and shit like that. Nothing but bad awards. However, it got four nominations at the Saturn Awards for best actor, best adapted screenplay, best effects, and best editing. It didn't win any of them, but it got nominated for him, which is at least saying something. This movie, like a lot of other films, went through a heavy marketing campaign through McDonald's. This is back when McDonald's used to go all out for their marketing for their toys and everything. They also had a lot of stuff on MTV. Um, the park that the kids play with play at in the movie is called Jurassic Park, which is a fun little nod right there. Uh, the video game was god-awful. Never played it. It don't. It was an original Game Boy game. It's not fun at all. It spawned a prequel, which I say was not good. However, I believe you and I have discussed in the past that if we had, if the prequel had come out first, if we had seen the prequel first, we probably would have enjoyed it more. I was actually talking with my brother about that yesterday. Um, I actually enjoy Viva Rock Vegas to an extent. Mm-hmm. I like. I mean, it's decent. I can watch it. It's you know, it's, stuff, it's nothing that I'm gonna write home about or anything. But yeah, I, I'm. I firmly believe that that in terms of what the original Flintstones was, how it really captured the cartoon show, how much I personally loved it, and all of that kind of stuff. And I thought it was as perfect as a Flintstones movie could get. Yeah. Any other Flintstones, anything would have been. It would have been hard to follow. Yeah, absolutely would have. So, yeah, I firmly believe that. I love Mark Addy, but after John Goodman, he's not a good choice to play Fred Flintstone. Like, he gave it the best he had. Now, I'd I'd argue that his voice was actually really good. His inflections, like when he'd say, come on, Barn, like, he had that down. Oh, yeah. Um, The less said about a Baldwin playing Barney, the better. No, no, it's not. (laughs) And then we got, you know... Sally Solomon. Yeah, Sally uh, Solomon playing Wilma. Wilma, a full <laughs> foot and a half taller than Mark Addy because the woman's an Amazon. <laughs> and he's a Smurf. And then, who played Betty in that? I'm about to find out because I was just sitting there thinking and I was like, whoa, 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 Chris will know. <laughs> let me, let me see here. I her name. Like, uh, I can see it in my head. I know what movie. I can see a, her in another movie she was in. She's okay, I, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking. That is, let's see, scroll right over, Jane Krakowski. Jane Krakowski, yes, 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 yes. yes. (laughs) Like, I can picture movies that she's been in in my head. She's normally a blonde, like, I, thank you for that. I freaking love this movie, man. I have loved this movie since I was a kid. Anytime I find it on a new streaming service, because I sadly do not own it, I have to watch it. Um, And actually... Funny story, and I told you about this yesterday, but I'll go in a little bit more detail about that. Uh, not yesterday, day before that. My entire life, I thought the first movie I ever saw in theaters was The Lion King. I was five years old. The movie came out in June when I was five. I remember seeing that movie. I remember going to Burger King afterwards, getting a kid's meal and everything, going back home. I remember it crystal clear. I knew I had seen this movie in theaters. But in my mind, I was like, the, the Lion King was the first film I saw. And I was talking to my grandmother the other day, and I mentioned that, and she goes, well, that wasn't the first movie you ever saw. And I was like, yes, it was, Grandma. She goes, no, 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 no. Your grandfather and I took you and your brother to the drive-in movie theater to see the Flintstones. 
You guys did so well with that that a couple weeks later, I took you to see The Lion King when it came out. This was the first movie I saw in theaters, and I saw it at a drive-in movie theater. I don't think it can get much more perfect than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I didn't get to see this film in theaters. Uh, my, my childhood was, you know, growing up as poor as I did and all that. It was very, very selective with getting to go see movies in theaters and all of that. I got to see my first film was a special showing of Superman 2 starring Christopher Reeve. My first legit movie I saw in theaters, like during its box office run, was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie. It would then be years later until Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace before I went back to theaters. And then I don't think I went back again until 2004 with uh, Alien vs. Predator. And, and you then, and your brother had to sneak into that one, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and then, I don't so, think your mother listens to my podcast. I think you're okay. Uh, well, I mean, even, you know, whatever. I'm 34 years old. I'll tell her. Tell me that you're not afraid of your mother at 34? I, I am to an extent, but I'll <laughs> let her know I snuck into a movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, uh, we saw two movies that day. We were actually going to, I know this is really going to show my nerd card, but uh, we, we were going to see Yu-Gi-Oh! The movie. And, <laughs> I never got to see that. Was it good at least? Yeah, like okay. we, we were going to see Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie, and the time that we got there, you know, this is before cell phones, people, before they were so common and all of that kind of stuff. So it was me, my brother, and two of, uh, two of our friends, and she dropped us off at the theater. It was Cinema 6 here in, uh, here in town, run-down piece of junk. No, Cinema 8, I'm sorry. Cinema 8, and um, run-down piece of junk theater. Whenever the Grand Theater came into town, they pretty much... Ran them out of here. Yeah. But, um, anywho, so they dropped, Mama dropped us off. We go up the stairs and everything, like, we're going to all pay separately. So I was like, one for Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie, please. And they're like, oh, that's sold out. And we're like, what? <laughs> and so we turned around to be like, you know, oh, well, you know, I guess we'll just go another that time. me that it was sold out. And all we see, <laughs> all we see is Mama's brake lights heading off and we're like uh so we're like trapped at the theater now at this point we can't call her because she doesn't have a cell phone so i made an executive decision i just turned and looked to see when the next screening was going to be and like okay there's another one that's starting in like an hour and a half or something like that well then i looked down and i saw alien versus predator and i was like the wheels got to turning i'm like hey Let's go watch Alien vs. Predator. Yeah. Yeah, let's watch Alien vs. Predator. So we snuck in and went and watched it. That movie was packed. And whenever we walked in, it was pitch black. We couldn't hardly see anything. The movie had already started. They were already in Antarctica. And whenever we... Or Alaska, wherever it was. It was in but, uh, well, Iceland, but yeah. whenever we were walking in, it was pitch black. We couldn't see anything. The only seats available was on the very front row. Oh, no. So we had, like, neck problems after that movie was over. Yeah. But that movie was great. And then as soon as it ended, um, like, uh, Mama came back to pick us up. And we're like, oh, hey, you know, we've just been kind of sitting here waiting for you, you know. But uh, we didn't get to see the movie or anything because it was sold out. And she's like, okay, well, I've got some other things to do. Y'all can stay and watch it anyway. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so she left again. And then we still went in and watched, uh, got to see Yu-Gi-Oh. So, oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> I've loved this movie, man, ever since my childhood. I rewatched it every chance I get. It's one of those, it's real easy to just 
enjoy and get into the movie. Because, I mean, the very opening shot is the freaking Pteranodon airplane that you see. You know what I mean? Like, they recreated how the dinosaurs move, the, them making puns and crap like that. Like, little the little fat uh, garbage disposal pig rats out Fred when they're at the damn fire. Because he gets a newer model, slimmer version and all that stuff. One part that's always confused me, ever since even whenever I was a little kid and I first saw this movie, everybody knows that, like, with the Flintstones, is like every episode begins with Fred clocking out, sliding down the dinosaur tail, going and picking up his family. They go to a movie theater and all that, okay? So you've got the, um, Clint, the bad guy, or Flint, whatever his name Cliff. was. Cliff. Um, so he's, you know, at the beginning, he's talking with Halle Berry and all that, and how um, some stooge is going to make all of his dreams come true. So then we get to see Fred in, on the Brontosaurus, and, you know, he slides down and all that kind of stuff, and then they go to the movie theater, and the movie starts. So, like, how how is the bad guy... Like, you know what I mean? Like, I've never thought about like We very obviously see the bad guy in the real world... But then everything that happens in the movie is them watching a movie. So then I would sit there and think, well, what does, how does his boss feel about that? Watching an entire movie where he's portrayed as just being the bad guy, gets covered in concrete that's named after a daughter named Concretia. Yeah. <laughs> flew right over my head whenever I was a little oh, yeah, kid. Same. I was just like, okay, why even put, you know, bring that up? And then, like, I was a teenager and it's like, I'm going to name it after my daughter, Concretia. And I was like, ah, ah, concrete! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Thank yeah, God he didn't name it Asphalt. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, yeah, so bad guy before the movie starts. And then, you know, after the movie ends, they go back home because the movie's over with. So what happened to him? Is he covered in the concrete? Was it just a movie that they were watching? Like, what what happened there? I'm going to have to rewatch it to find out now <laughs> because I'm, I'm genuinely, I'm hornswoggled, my good sir. I can't think of it. Yeah, that part's always bothered me ever, ever since I first watched it. But they did, other than that, they did such a good job of bringing the Flintstones to a live-action medium. Oh, yeah. Much better than you would have thought they could do. The, I mean, I love the part where Bam Bam smashes the damn store up. Uh, the part that makes me probably laugh the hardest is when he's trying to think of something to save the kids, and the first thing that pops up into his head is, is his, his mother-in-law mother getting eaten. By <laughs> and he's laughing. He's like, ah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I sympathize with him in, in that moment. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I remember when I saw it in theaters, he gets, he's late to the opening meeting that he's in as part of the board. He's like, I step, ran over a nail and he puts his foot up on the counter he's got and he's a got a bandaid on his toe. But then when I watch it on TV, that scene's not in it. And I'm like, did they really just edit out like a three second joke for time? There was other things they could have edited out for time. I mean, I don't know, dude. It's weird things that <laughs> yeah. they, they edit but, like, out. He did perfect. Like, John Goodman was Fred Flintstone in that. The Wilma shouting everything. Rick Moranis was great as Barney. Like, I don't really have anything negative I can say about the movie. I don't even like Rosie O'Donnell, but I like her in that movie. Yeah. There's only two movies I like her in. That and uh, A League of Their Own. Which is next week, by the way. Cool. <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's the uh, little announcement there. Still but crying in baseball. Love that damn movie. <laughs> Don't like Madonna, but I love that movie. 
Madonna's in that movie. I'm aware. Well, you, you suddenly stopped and looked at me. And I'm I mean, I was just because you stopped talking. Oh. I didn't know what was happening. I, I, <laughs> like, like, did you hit stop and I didn't know it? No, no, no. Like, no we're still going. But, okay. Uh, but yeah, this was the Flintstones. Like, I love this movie. This is one of those things that you just, it was magic when they captured it the first time and they're probably never going to be able to do it right again. That being said, I fully expect them to try at some point. Unfortunately. Um, the, they, they might try it on Amazon. They might try it on Netflix. They might try it on Hulu or HBO Max. There's there's any number of streaming services now available for them to try something like that. Well, there was almost that reboot with uh, Seth MacFarlane, you know, that he wanted to to have, get done. But uh, for better or worse, that did not happen. I'm going to go ahead and say for better. <laughs> yeah, it ba- basically would have been like a, uh, a Family Guy version of uh, oh. the Flintstones like <laughs> oh my god that sounds awful <laughs> oh i like the first couple of seasons of family guy and there are some jokes in later episodes that might make me laugh by and large i'm not a fan of that series um it has its moments for me like i could watch an entire episode and maybe laugh four times five times but usually, sometimes whenever it gets me, it gets me pretty good. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, I'll be like, like if if it's on, I'll be like, oh, Family Guy's on, and I'll finish that episode. And then it's like, if another one's coming on, I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I've had my fill for like a month. There you go. You know, like. <laughs> Meanwhile, I mean, I could watch the same episode of The Simpsons once a day and be fine with it. See, nope. I know you're not in The Simpsons. There's been some moments that have made you laugh over it, the years. It, but... it has had its moments, and I will all I will tell anybody. I cannot stand whenever somebody will sit there and say that they don't like a TV show or they don't like, like I'll use, I'm not going to name any names, but there's an individual that we both know that says that they do not like the TV show Friends because it's, it's not funny. It's never been funny and all that kind of stuff. And I'd sit there, you know, it makes me sit there and go, you're willingly forcing yourself not to find something funny. And I'm not saying that just to be a defender of Friends. You are never going to convince me. That a show that ran for a decade, that was considered one of the greatest of all time, one of the most iconic of all time. It launched careers. I mean, every member of the Friends cast still gets like ten plus, like twenty plus million dollars a year just in just in royalties and all that kind of stuff. You are never going to convince me that there is not a single moment of that show that would not make you laugh. I'm a diehard hater of The Simpsons. Cannot stand The Simpsons. I'll tell anybody I do not like The Simpsons. By and large, you hurt want nothing. Right want nothing to do with The Simpsons. There have been times where I'm just watching, like if someone I know was watching it or whatever, and something happens and it just hits me the right way, and I about fall out of my chair as I'm laughing so hard. My favorite instance is the one where Bart gets sent to to Paris. Homer falls down the stairs and gets hurt and lays there all day. Marge walks in. Homer, and that, 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 that. See, see, you're not doing it justice. Like, see, okay, like he's he's laying down. This is the first time I ever laughed at something from The Simpsons. So he's laying there and everything. And so then, like, you know, the baby comes up to him and he's like, "Go get the phone," or you know, something like that. She curls up, goes to sleep on him. Then the dog comes curling up and everything. Like, don't they have a cat too? Wasn't there something else? Yeah. Then it came and like, so he's just covered. In a baby, a dog, and a cat. And then that's whenever Marge comes in. Like, it shows the clock. Hours have gone by. He's just laying there, and he can't move. Marge comes home. Oh, my God, Homer, what happened to you? And just in the most monotone, like, 
sinister, like, you know something bad's about to happen. Homer's just like, the boy. Bring me the boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I died laughing. My brother, because he knows I can't stand the Simpsons, and whenever he saw me laughing, I don't know if he thought I was faking it, or if he's like, oh, he's just being a smart aleck or something like that. But no, I was like, I was genuinely laughing. I, I thought say, that was hilarious. There are times that your laughter, like your genuine laugh, almost sounds like you're mocking somebody, <laughs> which makes it that much funnier when you keep going. And believe it or not, there actually is a little connection there because Matt Groening directly cites the Flintstones as an inspiration for how he has scripted the Flintstone or the the Simpsons characters. So, but this was the Flintstones. I love this movie. I'm glad you could join me for it. Finally, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's. It, it's been a it's been a week and a half in the last two days. Well, yeah, you know he he uh, he had the the incident with the. Uh, in their family, and then I know this is in no way I'm not comparing no, the two no, situations in the all. slightest. But I've um, uh, we we discovered my lovely lady discovered that we had uh, a bunch of water that was coming out of our dishwasher, and so I had to to try and find the leak. But of course, it wasn't as simple as just finding the leak because whoever built the counter that my dishwasher goes around. It's like they built the counter around the dishwasher. So part of the counter had to be removed oh, in order to pull the dishwasher out. Oh, and so, yeah, I've I've gotten uh, everything. You know, it's took, taken up way more of my weekend than I wanted it to. And, yeah, so with that, thing. things on his end and things on my end until finally today, I was just like, I'm shutting down for right now. Yeah. And I told Emily, I'm like, <sighs> I'm going, I'm going. I was yeah. like, I, I need, I need to get over there. Get, my, my I'll, I'll finish was, this later. <laughs> my wife was out with her father. They went out to her mom's house to look through some stuff and go through some stuff. And she told me, you know, I don't want. And we both agree that she, me, her mom, would not have wanted everyone to just stop everything about their lives over this kind of a situation. So it's big. You know, all you can do is try and keep on and move forward. So, but I'm glad you could join me on this. I look forward to the next time you can join me. Next week, I'm going to be talking about a league of their own. Following up on that will be Life of Pi. And then I'm probably, that the last week after Life of Pi, I'm going to try and do something that'll have three of us here again. If I can work it out, it'll be the 1989 Batman movie. Okay. Because the week after that, I'm going to be out of town in Utah on vacation going to see my family. So there's not going to be an episode that weekend. There won't be an episode the final weekend of May. But... I appreciate you all for listening. I appreciate the hell out of you for coming on. Always a blast. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.